name is Katherine Weisner. I'm the Associate Director for the Office of Faculty Development in the University of British Columbia's Faculty of Medicine. I'm going to read our paper titled Incentives for Clinical Teachers on why their complex influences should lead us to proceed with caution. My co-authors were Eric Dreisen, Carrie Kunchich, Cassandra Hess, and Kevin Eva. Abstract. When medical education programs have difficulties recruiting or retaining clinical teachers, they often introduce incentives to help improve motivation. Previous research, however, has shown incentives can unfortunately have unintended consequences. When and why that is the case in the context of incentivizing clinical teachers remains unclear. The purposes of this study, therefore, were to understand what values and motivations influence teaching decisions and to delve deeper into how teaching incentives have been perceived. Methods. An interpretive description methodology was used to improve understanding of the development and delivery of teaching incentives. A purposeful sampling strategy identified a heterogeneous sample of clinical faculty teaching in undergraduate and postgraduate contexts. 16 semi-structured interviews were conducted and transcripts were analyzed using an iterative process to develop a thematic structure that accounts for general trends and individual variations. Results. Clinicians articulated interrelated and dynamic personal and environmental factors that had linear, dual-edged, and inverted U-shape impacts on their motivation towards teaching. Barriers were frequently rationalized away, but cumulative barriers often led to teaching attrition. Clinical teachers were motivated when they felt valued and connected to their peers, learners, leadership, and the medical education committee. While incentives aimed at producing these connections could be perceived as supportive, they could also negatively impact motivation if they were impersonal, inequitable, inefficient, or poorly framed. These findings reinforce the literature suggesting that it is necessary to proceed with caution when labeling any particular factor as a motivator or barrier to teaching. They take us deeper, however, towards understanding how and why clinical teachers' perceptions are unique, dynamic, and fluid. Incentive schemes can be beneficial for teacher recruitment and retention, but must be designed with nuance that takes into account what makes clinicians feel valued if the strategy is to do more good than harm. Introduction Recruiting and retaining motivated clinical teachers can be challenging. When teacher numbers are insufficient or when clinicians are not motivated to teach, the quality of education for medical students and residents can suffer. Suboptimal solutions lead to suboptimal learning conditions, such as increases in the number of students per preceptor or leading the educator to succumb to burnout. When learners are assigned to clinicians who are not motivated to teach, negative role modeling becomes likely and feedback conversations can become hurtful or leave students struggling to develop the full range of competencies that will make them compassionate and effective caregivers. That said, even enthusiastic and dedicated clinical teachers are not immune to motivational issues. As practice, systemic, and educational demands continue to increase, Clinicians often struggle with incorporating educational activities into their day-to-day. -day. These problems routinely lead medical schools to seek ways of providing incentives and rewards for clinicians' teaching efforts. As a result, financial compensation, teaching awards, and letters of appreciation are commonly used to demonstrate program leaders' gratitude. 
Unfortunately, in a recent review, we found ample evidence that incentives can often backfire, reducing motivation rather than encouraging the desired behavior. There are multiple accounts of this phenomenon, and integration across theories is difficult as each foregrounds different mechanisms through which incentives have an influence. Further, the mechanisms outlined are not necessarily mutually exclusive, thereby suggesting the need to use multiple perspectives as sensitizing concepts to better understand the role incentives play in divergent contexts. Cognitive evaluation theorists from psychology, for example, argue that extrinsic incentives like awards can demotivate those who are intrinsically driven by the pleasure they receive from teaching. Equity theorists from organizational behavior, in contrast, emphasize the importance of setting appropriately sized incentives in relation to the investment of effort one exerts, so as to not promote perceptions of unfairness that reduce motivations. Motivation crowding theorists from behavioral economics caution against incentivizing pro-social activities such as volunteering out of fear that doing so can reduce the reward one receives from feeling altruistic. Given the variable ways in which incentives can yield unintended and often negative consequences, the mechanism of their influence in health professional education has not been sufficiently addressed. Several studies have explored motivations and found that clinicians teach for intrinsic reasons for example, personal satisfaction, first and foremost. Next, most frequently they claim to teach to meet professional goals, for example, career advancement. Low on the list, in contrast, are extrinsic reasons, for example, money. This work, however, offers a necessary but perhaps not sufficient reflection of a complex problem, given that the literature alluded to above suggests that motivation towards certain behaviors are rarely so straightforward. Complexity can easily be underappreciated when considerations of teaching incentives are based on surveys of what one perceives without opportunity or prompts to reflect on the nuances of how different factors interact to create the possibility of unanticipated consequences. To avoid the risk of unintentionally lowering motivation through the use of incentives, as has been seen in other fields, we need a deeper understanding of how incentives exert their influence on clinical teachers. The current study offers this next step by exploring what is driving clinicians to teach, the barriers they face, and how they have perceived teaching incentives in the past. Our aim is to better understand how incentives can be developed to act as meaningful and impactful supports. In studying this issue, we were guided by the key takeaway messages from a variety of other disciplines and the precarious nature with which incentives have been historically shown to impact motivation. The overarching research questions are, A, how is the relationship between motivation and incentives experienced in medical education from the perspective of clinical teachers? And B, how do clinicians view the role of incentives in influencing their motivations to teach? In addressing these questions, we hope to contribute new knowledge around how unique interactions between incentives and motivations play out for clinical teachers, thereby generating recommendations that will better support clinicians in their roles as educators and educational administrators in their roles as program leaders. Methods. Study design. We used interpretive description methodology and followed the consolidated criteria for reporting qualitative research. 
Interpretive description is a relatively new qualitative approach that builds on the principles of grounded theory and phenomenology to prioritize exploration of the applied questions commonly asked by health researchers. Constructivist in worldview, interpretive description is used to capture patterns and generate description that can inform understanding for the sake of improving the problem being studied. It tends, therefore, to be very focused while acknowledging that multiple realities exist, each being socially constructed by individuals and influenced by cultural and social context. In other words, an understanding of the meaning of experiences is co-constructed by participants and researchers. Setting. The MD program at the University of British Columbia is a four-year graduate entry distributed program that follows a two plus two pre-clerkship years and clerkship years structure. It is delivered at four regional campuses, each of which has its own distinct priorities, faculty, and institutional culture, despite being part of the larger UBC program. A large majority of the teachers have clinical faculty appointments and thus have considerable flexibility in how often and in what context they teach. Clinicians appointed to academic positions are expected to teach, but still often have flexibility with respect to how they contribute educationally. As such, teachers receive a variety of supports and teaching incentives, financial or otherwise, depending on where and which learners they teach. Faculty from all four sites were included, in addition to one participant from the nearby Cummings School of Medicine in Calgary, Alberta. Given the distributed nature of the program, interviews took place in person when possible, in clinic, hospital settings, or other locations at the request of participants, and long-distance interviews took place over the phone or via video conference. Participants. A purposeful sampling strategy was used to identify information-rich cases, clinical faculty known to have taught in a variety of settings, both undergraduate and postgraduate. We strove to maximize heterogeneity by pursuing clinicians who have taught across clinical contexts, for example, inpatient and outpatient, and who had varying levels of teaching experience. Some participants taught in classroom environments in addition to clinical ones. The lead researcher asked known clinicians to disseminate a participation invitation to their clinician networks via email. Those who contacted the researcher were interviewed. Participants thought likely to challenge early conceptualizations of themes were pur purposefully sought. For example, early respondents were highly involved in teaching and described similar perceptions, so networks were used to invite clinicians who had resigned from teaching roles to challenge observed patterns. Data collection. An interview guide, see Appendix S1, was structured using the various theories identified through our literature review that offered different perspectives on the relationship between motivation and incentives. Questions, however, were phrased broadly to avoid directing participants to particular views. Further, conceptualizations that arose from the data themselves were embraced and explored through iterative modification of the interview guide in efforts to challenge assumptions made by the theories that served as sensitizing concepts. In general, interviews took 45 to 90 minutes and began with several questions to capture demographics and teaching contexts. Semi-structured questions were then asked that explored individuals' perceptions of teaching, incentives provided to them, barriers they face, and whether they felt valued as teachers. 
Two initial interviews were conducted with clinicians known to the lead researcher to pilot the interview guide, assess whether the guide was effectively aligned with the study purpose, and to determine how the questions would resonate with those in the participant pool. After a debrief discussion following these interviews, only slight modifications to the interview protocol were made, so these data were included in our analysis. Additional minor study guide modifications occurred iteratively throughout the interviews after the research team reviewed transcripts and noted when participants raised constructs the investigators thought should be asked in a more targeted way with future participants. Similarly, changes were made when probing questions did not yield much discussion. Interviews continued until three participants had been recruited after the data appeared to have saturated, as in it stopped revealing novel perspectives on the research questions regardless of differences in participants' teaching experience and work contexts. Data analysis. The interpretive description technique was followed to analyze interview transcripts, which involved iterative phases of interpreting data, synthesizing findings, and theorizing patterns and relationships. The first three transcripts were reviewed independently by two investigators, and initial impressions helped to inform changes to the interview guide in subsequent interviews. After approximately 10 interviews were completed, four investigators independently reviewed two contrasting transcripts, each one faculty developer, one clinician, and two medical educators documented their own reactions to the data with effort to identify how their personal experiences and context might influence their interpretation. These documented reactions were then discussed collectively to identify where investigators had similar and divergent impressions for the purpose of identifying patterns and deriving implications from the data. Such efforts at reflexivity are critical to the interpretive description methodology. The collated output of the group's discussions was used to develop an initial thematic structure that was then used by all four investigators to code two more transcripts. This process continued with ongoing adjustments to the thematic structure and interview guide until transcript coding no longer yielded additional revisions. Finally, a research assistant read through all transcripts and systematically coded each against the thematic structure. Through weekly meetings with the lead author, minor adjustments to the thematic structure were made as challenges applying the codebook were identified. For example, some subthemes were merged when coding made them appear redundant or dropped when coded data were not substantive enough to make claims of relevance to the research question. Once all coding was completed, the research team extrapolated the general message from each theme within the thematic structure while also seeking contradictory cases and ways to account for variations in claims between individual participants. This was done by reviewing theme descriptions and example quotes, with group meetings held to synthesize and theorize the meaning of themes through examination of patterns, dissonances, trends, and implications in relation to the research questions. An audit trail was kept throughout the analytic phase of this work, and the process and product of our analysis was completed in such a way that findings could be directly applied as a starting point for intervention. Ethics. Ethical board approval was provided by UBC's Behavioral Research Ethics Board. Results. 16 interviews were completed. A summary of participants' specialties, locations, and years in practice can be seen in Table 1. To understand the impact of incentives, we need to first know what drives clinicians towards or away from teaching. 
We start, therefore, with a description of personal and external factors influencing teaching decisions, along with their complexities, as in the nuanced and variable ways in which these factors play a role, before outlining participants' perceptions of teaching incentives. Factors influencing decisions to teach. Motivators participants express were categorized into personal factors related to the self and external factors related to the environment and context. Regarding personal factors, many expressed unselfish regard for the welfare of students and the medical community at large that fundamentally influenced their desire to teach. For example, they felt a duty to pay it forward and had deeply rooted passion for supporting the development of future physicians. Many also expressed desire to build connections, reputation, or the currency of their clinical knowledge. Regarding external factors, many participants shared that they were more motivated to teach when learners could help make patient care more efficient or when their clinical environment was conducive to teaching. For example, when they had phys adequate physical space to accommodate learners. Feeling that time was stretched too thin, that income loss was too great, that learners posed safety risks, or that the clinician did not have a choice in whether they taught created motivational barriers, as did the need to balance family demands. These factors were not static over time or across environments, but were weighed in by individuals in a dynamic manner that evolved throughout their career and life phases. Further, while some factors were described as operating with a fair, fairly linear influence, for example, the more one likes to teach, the more likely they are to do it, many factors appeared to operate in a more complex manner in that the presence of a motivator did not always lead to more teaching, nor did the presence of a barrier always lead to less. To illustrate, some factors were dual-edged in the sense that their presence was sometimes described as motivating and sometimes created negatives that reduce motivation. For example, dependent on other factors, a clinician's sense of duty to teach could feel like a privilege in some moments and a begrudging obligation in others. Still other factors seem better described as an inverted U-shape function, increasing motivation to a point before causing a decline. For example, worry about one's knowledge being out of date increased participants' desire to teach because learners can help clinicians stay up to date, but only to a point. Feeling too far from their expertise deterred clinicians from teaching. Table two, while not comprehensive, illustrates the inadequacy of simply listing factors that motivate or create barriers to teaching by providing descriptions and representative quotes of linear, dual-edged, and U-shaped factors. Adding further complexity, participants frequently rationalize certain barriers away by focusing on the benefits they derive from teaching. Their perspective on compensation provides a good example. While participants generally acknowledge that in most cases, teaching results in a loss of income, the sense of duty to pay it forward can be so strong that the opportunity to teach was described by many as equivalent to a currency they valued more than money. That's where the money is for me. It's knowing that I've taught this person something and that person's now going to either teach it to somebody else or maybe diagnose something and make a difference and have an impact in somebody's life. To me, that's where the richness is. Participant two. While such justifications worked in the short term, Motivations were dynamic as participants described how the accumulation of barriers impacted their ability or willingness to teach. 
As a result, it was not possible to identify particular factors that always led to teaching attrition, as their individual influence affected clinicians differently and at different points in time. Some clinicians stopped teaching because they felt like they had given enough, as in it was time to take a step back, but the tipping point was usually triggered by a negative experience or by entering a separate life or career stage. I don't particularly like teaching when I have a fee-for-service clinic and I'm pressured to see patients quickly just because I have a lot of patients and because I need to get home to children and like motherhood and stuff, participant 15. Those clinicians who continued to teach despite barriers they faced hinted that the cumulative impact of a busy family life in combination with a busy clinical practice, for example, would eventually lead to resigning from teaching commitments. I think overall... I think overall, we're uh, happy with our lives, but I think we're feeling stretched and we're feeling like we're on the brink where we can't sustain this. Participant 16. It is in the face of such complex realities that we must consider how teaching incentives are perceived and might be used to mitigate against eventual burnout in teaching attrition. Perceptions of teaching incentives and their impact on making teachers valued. All participants indicated that students' appreciation created particularly important incentivization. In addition, they described how certain incentives and rewards, for example, thank you letters, teaching awards, gifts, and feedback, built perception that they were valued as a teacher, which appeared to be the primary driver of their motivation to teach. In doing so, they tended to speak around constructs like recognition, appreciation, connectedness, and relationships. However, the way in which participants described these incentives were again nuanced and highly variable. For example, some insisted they did not want awards, and some referenced the awards they received as being particularly meaningful. Some who felt valued as teachers had difficulty articulating what made them feel that way, and others had not even considered whether they felt valued by the medical school. Regardless of this variability, all participants made a distinction between the notion of an incentive and its implementation, indicating that even well-intentioned incentives could backfire. That is, the delivery of an incentive was just as, if not more, important than the incentive itself, if the acknowledgement was to do more good than harm. Negative impacts of incentives that were designed to be positive were prominent in participants' recollections with several participants becoming emotional when discussing times they felt undervalued. Such unintended consequences impacted morale quite generally, reducing participants' sense of appreciation and connection while threatening relationships that were meaningful to them. Incentives generally seemed to elicit unintended consequences when they were impersonal, inequitable, inefficient, or lacked appropriate framing. The label of impersonal reflects observations that participants were grateful to receive acknowledgements of their teaching efforts, but only when they were specific. Thank you emails or appreciation letters that lacked personal attributes were not enthusiastically accepted. You get this random email and there's no names attached to it or anything, but it's like, oh, thank you for being a teacher, participant six. It's a form letter. So they're just changing your name and Dr. So-and-so and and Dr. So-and-so. I actually don't like those. I just throw them in the trash bin because I don't think they really mean anything. Participant nine. In stark contrast, one physician who felt no appreciation from the medical school stating, I feel like 
Just another monkey that's replaceable with a different monkey. Was deeply touched by a jester from her students and felt that it was their way of showing they valued her as an educator. At the end of a course, I went up to my office and there was, you know, a four pack of a drink with a little thank you card from the group that I had taught, participant 13. Inequities in the acknowledgement of clinical teachers left some feeling overlooked and their efforts unnoticed. This came up when discussing promotions, payments, titles, and awards, especially when others were seen to receive something for which they were perceived as less deserving. For example, two participants reluctantly expressed anguish when discussing the lack of fairness in how the medical school allocates promotions. I don't want to be very specific about this, but sometimes in the program you put your heart and soul in for many years, and then someone who hasn't contributed suddenly might get a particular position or particular credit or particular acknowledgement. Maybe people just want change, but sometimes you feel undervalued. Participant 16. I'm not looking for an award of any kind. Really, I'm not. I don't want it, in fact. But it's funny that when you get a bit cynical about it, like, you know, I know this person specifically that got an award has been criticized by students for teaching by shame. Participant eight. Inefficiency with administrative procedures tended to make meaning away from the incentive itself. In this regard, Payments for teaching, paperwork requirements for promotion reviews, and delayed feedback processes were brought up multiple times, suggesting the effort required by the teacher was sometimes not worth the reward. Inefficiency caused frustration by adding another time-consuming step to schedules that are thinly stretched. Don't ask clinical faculty to have to like do a million dollars worth of paperwork to get their $90 an hour or whatever it is. Have enough people hired to make a system that works and works well and works easily so that when people teach, they know what they're going to get. They know what they're committing to and they know what the rewards are going to be. Participant 12. I might get feedback now from teaching residents six months ago. And I'm like, well, I have no idea what that was, what they're basing it on or what kind of weeks they were having or participant 11. Finally, Framing compensation as payment for teaching was insulting to some, given that it was simply a drop in the bucket. Participants did not want more money, but thought the framing of financial incentives could be adjusted to better reflect what it is in actuality, a stipend, a gesture, or symbolic token of thanks. In any case, payment seemed to be a necessary but not sufficient incentive for teaching, and was felt best combined with personal communication and appreciation. In fact, they shouldn't even call it compensation. It could be uh, a gesture to help defray the cost that you're giving up. It's costing you money. This is a little gesture to thank you and just to help you defray some of the some of the cost. I think that would be a better way to put it personally. Participant nine. Discussion. This study highlights how the precarious relationship between motivation and incentives is enacted in medical education through an in-depth exploration of how clinician teachers view their roles as teachers, the motivations and barriers they face, and their perspective on how incentives influence their motivations to teach. In particular, we found several personal and environmental factors that enable and inhibit teaching motivations in complex and dynamic ways. We also found that incentives, while often well-intentioned, can have unintended consequences that undermine teachers' motivations. 
These findings have important implications for medical schools and educational leaders who are considering incentive schemes to build and sustain clinicians' motivations towards teaching. Theoretical Implications As noted in the introduction, previous research on incentives from within health professional education has been largely atheoretical, focused on listing facilitators and barriers clinicians perceive to influence their motivation towards teaching. Our data highlight the insufficiency of this approach. Many factors our participants named as influencing their motivations were similar to those identified by others, but our data suggests the way in which they have their influence to be more nuanced and variable than a simple list would suggest. One factor can present itself as a motivator or as a barrier dependent on the context and individual. For example, the dual edge pattern in table two. Some act as motivators up to a point, but then become barriers once a threshold is reached. For example, the inverted U-shape pattern. As such, it appears prudent to be cautious in presuming any particular factor to be a motivator or barrier to teaching, as their influence will depend on their interplay and how factors are experienced within a given context. This may be why it is so hard to fully integrate the different theoretical perspectives that are found outside of health professional education, summarized by Wisner and Eva, and highlighted in the introduction. Variability in accounts of how incentives influence motivation may represent context-appropriate foregrounding of different factors, rather than reflecting competing or contradictory notions. Looking across the theory-related concepts uncovered in that previous review, one that was particularly prominent in our data was that of equity. Participants in our health professional education context most often discuss teaching incentives such as payments, promotions, titles, and awards in terms of disparities and comparisons to what others received, to the amount of effort exerted, or to how much income they can be making in other ways. They discuss the absolute amount of financial incentives to a lesser extent. These reflections suggest that equity theory which posits that individuals will feel distressed if they deem their inputs, for example, effort and time, to be misaligned with their outcomes, for example, salary and recognition, is a particularly relevant theory for health professional education. Clinician teachers may feel that others in comparable situations receive more for putting in less effort, or they may feel that the overarching system, for example, the medical school, unfairly determines those inputs and outputs. Again, this suggests incentivization is less about which rewards are good or bad, and more about whether they are fair, equitable, and transparent. The extent to which such comparisons are made within a system, for example, across sites or individuals at a particular medical school, or across systems, for example, in relation to those working in a highly different context, remains to be seen. In any case, that participants often rationalize away barriers and continue to teach despite the drawbacks remind us of the power of cognitive dissonance, the state of one's attitudes and behaviors contradicting. Cognitive dissonance theorists suggest individuals have a strong need to act in accordance with how they feel towards a given behavior and are more likely to change their attitude to match their behavior than to change their behavior. This theory offers an explanation as to why clinicians reframe their attitudes for example, saying that they lose money by teaching, but arguing they gain richness in helping others succeed before changing their behavior, for example, quitting teaching because of the financial toll. 
While we may be able to rely on clinicians negotiating their own dissonance as a mechanism to overcome barriers, there is a limit as barriers appear to have a cumulative effect that can eventually tip the scales to the point where justifying teaching is no longer worth the cost. This reinforces the importance of developing insights regarding what can be done on a practical level to mitigate perceptions of inequity and a lack of motivation to teach. Practical Implications Very few sentiments were as prevalent in our data as claims that relationships with learners create important motivational drivers for clinician educators. As such, one practical change these findings suggest is to stop conceiving of incentivizing medical teachers as a top-down process in which incentives are delivered by leadership or the institution. Rather, given that all participants valued how their learners perceive them, ensuring appropriate mechanisms are in place for clinicians to receive information indicating how they have positively impacted their learners could be a highly fruitful endeavor. Helping students appreciate their role in encouraging and enabling effort to be put forth by their faculty may be particularly impactful for generating the meaningful teacher-learner relationships that make clinicians feel rewarded in their educational activity. Given that such relationships have been shown important for engaging learners in effective feedback processes, they may be expected also to enable constructive feedback to be delivered to teachers when needed in a manner that is impactful rather than demotivating. While most research on teacher-learner relationships focuses on how teachers might develop relationships for their learners' benefits, how guidelines for learners might be generated that maintain the authenticity of feedback processes is an important area for further research if learners' contributions to preceptors' ongoing efforts are to be optimized. We also recommend thinking of teacher support strategically as a program of activity rather than as a particular act on the part of an administrator. The dynamic nature of motivation makes it unlikely that one incentive scheme will always be sufficient for a given individual and thereby makes it foolhardy to imagine that a one-size-fits-all strategy could be created that would motivate all individuals. The complex nature of the interaction between factors, time, and context suggests a need to think idiosyncratically and with nuance when trying to build motivation by offering incentives. It is valuable to pay heed to general principles regarding what motivates people, including feelings of competence, connection and autonomy, as outlined in self-determination theory, and to develop supports and incentives aligned with those values. Doing so, however, is likely to require an array of strategies to avoid clinician teachers feeling demotivated by poorly implemented incentivization schemes. For clinicians who want to feel like part of an academic institution, the opportunity to join teaching academies or access university resources might be most impactful. For others who want to build connections, networking and community building opportunities might be particularly beneficial. Others still may require support building resi resilience in the face of difficult learner encounters, suggesting that faculty development offerings focused on nurturing teaching identities and building communities of practice along preceptors could prove valuable. Regardless of what strategy, or ideally strategies, one adopts, the unintended consequences of well-intentioned incentive schemes suggest we need to think carefully about how incentives are crafted and delivered. Offering incentives in ways that undermine clinicians' motivations can have lasting consequences and build cynicism. 
Generic and template-based letters of support can signal that the recipient is not worth the time it takes to craft a personal letter. At the same time, it must be recognized that teacher recruitment issues should not solely be framed as a motivation problem for which offering incentives provides a panacea. Acknowledging that certain in-practice environments, for example, fee-for-service roles, can create more barriers than others, for example, salaried conditions working where residents can take some of the patient load, is important. Having in children, similarly, may prevent one from spending copious amounts of extra time in the office, but the extent to which time creates a barrier might be influenced by building confidence in teaching and personal connections with learners. While not an easy task to address, it is likely worth investing additional effort to reduce barriers for those who are struggling to find motivation, while recognizing that blanket statements about clinicians or contexts overlook many of the individual realities influencing how teaching is perceived. Limitations. This study purposely sought out the perspectives of clinician teachers because they are more likely to leave academic medicine than our basic and social scientists. As such, the findings may be less pertinent to other types of teachers who may have more protective teaching time. They may also be less pertinent in contexts where individuals have less control over whether and how they contribute educationally. That said, we would argue that the importance of autonomy for motivation is sufficiently great as a rule, that it will remain important to consider the influence of incentives and other forms of support any setting if teaching quality is to be maintained. Of course, the capacity to provide different forms of incentives will depend more generally on the resources available. Given that both institutions from which participants were recruited exist in high-income countries, their particular experiences may not be transferable to lower-income settings, even while we anticipate that the general principles identified are worth heeding. Similarly, those attempting to apply our findings to other institutions should consider the potential for different teaching structures cultures, and compensation arrangements to impact on the transferability of these results. Many participants in the current study had worked and taught at other institutions, and rarely did they indicate that their perspectives were specific to UBC's context, but few of them are likely to have experienced teaching in less economically privileged parts of the world. Finally, while we were able to capture multiple perspectives by including those who either quit teaching or who had turned down teaching opportunities within the participant pool, individuals who could not be recruited, for example, clinicians who never engage in teaching, may have stronger perspectives that are not reflected in the current study. Conclusions In sum, while our deliberate efforts to iteratively explore and tease apart the intricate relationships between motivation and incentives surrounding teaching have not revealed a straightforward recipe for how to best incentivize clinical teachers, three key messages appear critical. One, there are a variety of factors at play that are experienced in ways that are unique to individuals and are subject to change over time and across contexts. Two, Clinical teachers generally feel valued and hence motivated to teach when they feel a. recognized and appreciated for the teaching efforts, b. connected to their learners, peers, leadership, or the medical education community, and c. they have meaningful teacher-learner relationships. While different clinicians may prioritize different relationships, recognition by and appreciation of learners appears particularly impactful. And three, 
To be supportive as opposed to harmful, teaching incentives should be designed and delivered in ways that are personal, equitable, efficiently provided, and framed with care. Acknowledgements. The authors would like to thank the Royal College of Physicians and Surgeons Canada for providing financial support for this work in the form of a Royal College Associated Medical Services CanMeds Research Development Grant. Mm-hmm.